1: Hello and welcome. This is Better Than Yesterday. Thank you so much for being here. This is a podcast that's here to make your day today better than yesterday by having conversations with people from all over the world, uh, from all works of life, some of them experts in their field. Each episode will leave you with something that helps you go, you know what? Today, a better one than it was. That's it. That's all I'm here to do. Been here since 2013. I think the ninth birthday of the show came and went. I think it happened this week. I think the 14th or 15th of October, September 2013 was the first episode ever. But we've been here since then. There's hundreds of episodes to listen to. Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm with a guest. And Fridays, I'm here with you. Thank you for the feedback about last week's episode. I just said Mondays and Wednesdays are when I'm with a guest. Um, (laughs) uh, Last week, I wasn't. And this week, I'm not again. More about that in a sec. But thank you so much for the lovely, lovely feedback about Monday's episode. If you're not listened to it, it's very different to the kind of episode I normally do, but I was really, really happy to hear that so many people enjoy listening, going on that journey with me. And um, if you haven't listened to it yet, do check it out. Also, thank you so much for the pod support. If you've ever tried to give a puffer to a toddler, it's an episode for you. If you are thinking there going to be a toddler in your life, at some point, you're going to have to give them a puffer. This episode's for you. So thanks very much for getting in touch. Send or email at com, or you can get me a DM. Um, I'm just on Instagram. You can find me there. And I'd love to know what you think about this one because I'm still recovering from surgery. I've got another month or so where I can't touch my right foot to the floor. There's a nurse that comes every day, which is nice. It's not the same nurse, different nurse every day, but they're very lovely. Uh, if I didn't have that, I'd, I'd still be in hospital. And i mentioned the other week about all the people that worked really, really hard to get me out of hospital. And, um... Thankfully, we live in a country where the kind of care that I need, I can have at home. It doesn't mean a nurse comes every day. It doesn't mean I'm, a bit, I'm quite limited in my mobility, but I'm at home and that's a big deal. So I'm sitting here in bed and I've got a lot of time to think. And my brain, well, how do I put this? My brain has helped me with the career I've got. Help me get the career I've got, help me stay in the career that I've got. Because my brain thinks in different directions to other people at a different speed. Sometimes that speed is very, very fast. Sometimes that direction is in a very, very unhelpful direction. But nonetheless, the thinking and the observing and the connections that my brain makes have made me good at the particular job that I've chosen to do. Uh, Other people's brains do certain things that make them good at their jobs. My brain makes me good at my job. Regardless of what which direction my brain's going, though, the, the way my brain jumps around and connects with things and observes things and thinks about things and asks questions in the middle of tangents is, is really entertaining. I find it quite entertaining. Sometimes I, I, I just observe my thoughts sometimes and watch where they go and how do I get there. And last week I took you on an adventure of what that can feel like. About an hour long, that podcast. It was about an hour long. But the process that my brain... Does in what I spoke about last week, everything you heard in that last episode, that happens inside my brain, sometimes in less than 10 seconds, sometimes in less than five. To that level of detail, it just, it's that intense sometimes. But I've got some more surgery coming up, and we normally keep a lot of guests in the pipeline. And we just, with Mask Singer and Bachelors and surgery, we had just enough episodes to get us through to have me getting out of hospital. And we had a bunch of episodes lined up to record the week I got out, but then I didn't get out. I was in hospital for longer than I thought. And then we got behind again. So I'm going to do another episode without a guest today because normally I do have guests on Mondays, but considering the situation, I haven't been able to get down to my studio because I can't sit for the amount of time that it takes to record a show. I can't Have my leg below me for that long, considering how immobile I am. It just, my foot blows up. It's not great. Hopefully, by next week, things will be different. But today, it's another episode of you and me going on an adventure inside my head. So I'm sitting here in my bed and I'm thinking about there's been extraordinary achievements in athletics and sports this week. Huge, huge things have come and gone. Serena Williams, she retired easily as. One of the greatest athletes to ever walk the earth. The longest span of Grand Slam singles by a tennis player at over 17 years. Won the US Open 10 weeks pregnant. Woman's goddamn machine. Amazing. A truly magnificent athlete. We are lucky to be alive at the same time that Serena Williams was competing. Because it'll take a lot to equal that, come anywhere near that. We also saw Steph Gilmore bag her eighth world surfing title. Huge result. Absolutely huge. She was tied with former podcast guest, Lane Beachley, at seven world titles. She now pulled ahead eight world titles. An absolute triumph, making her the most successful female surfer in history. And she's hot on the heels of Kelly Slater with his 11 titles. An amazing athlete amazing athlete. And just one of the most, you know, extraordinary Australian athletes. So, you know, when I'm thinking about extraordinary Australian athletes, you can't go past someone like Emma McCann, for example, 11 Olympic medals, the most decorated Australian Olympian of all time in any sport. Unbelievable. She's also won more than 30 medals in international competitions. Like incredible athlete. Like we are gifted in our country. We truly, truly are. But there is, there is an Australian athlete, that is often forgotten when we think about the greatest of all time. And the legacy of this athlete, it kind of bothers me that the name doesn't come to mind when we think about the greatest Australian athletes of of all time. Because I'm not talking about Don Bradman or Greg Norman or Rod Laver, Ian Thorpe. I'm not talking about Dawn Fraser, Nova Beres or Cathy Freeman. I'm not talking about Jack Brabham. I'm not talking about Shane Warne. I'm talking about an athlete born in Queenbeyanne in 1941 who would go on to be one of the greatest Australian athletes ever to breathe air, one who would terrify their competitors for decades. July 1941 was a wild time in the world. America had yet to enter World War II, and in Queenbeyanne, uh, which is a town not far from Canberra, but that was still reeling from the nearby Canberra air disaster. which was a terrible, terrible, terrible terrib- air crash. It killed 10 people, which in 1941, not a lot of people were flying planes, but 10's a lot. 10's a lot at any time, but 10 people in 1941's a lot. But it also, incredibly, it included three members of the Australian cabinet, three sitting members of the cabinet and the cabinet chief of staff. So four people who were in the cabinet and the chief of staff all died in this accident. They were part of the United Australia Party, which was in power at the time, led by the Prime Minister, Robert Menzies. And that crash, it's said, like the running theory is that that airplane crash eventually damaged the party so much that Robert Menzies would, would never actually recover from that loss and eventually lost power and stopped being Prime Minister. But don't worry, he was back in, in 1945 with a new party that he helped create and he got elected as the leader of the Liberal Party. But more about that another time. But it was into this, you know, difficult time when Australia was at war. America yet to show up. What the fuck are we going to do? Things weren't going well. A young athlete came into the world, an athlete that would go on to be one of the greatest of all time. She is one of 11 kids, 11 kids, born into a sport-mad family with a father who... Represented the New South Wales countryside in the days when we had city versus country rugby league. I remember watching that on TV. Her dad was a champion, a league player. I guess I like had 11 kids, and if mum and dad decided to walk onto the pitch, they, they would have enough for a league side. That is huge. But can you imagine that? 13 people in one house in 1941? I mean, do you even have a fridge? But if you do, how big is it? Good God, what's the bathroom roster? Do the younger kids ever get new clothes, ever? Does anyone ever not live in hand-me-downs? Like, no. That's unbelievable. But with 11 kids, there was always someone to throw a ball to, hit a ball to, or keep a ball away from. So in high school, this young woman got right into field hockey and was instantly quite good at it. At first, she played into school hockey, but very quickly was selected for the state side, New South Wales state side. And in later years, she made the all-Australian hockey team, not once, but twice. But hockey wasn't the thing that she is most well known for. Because while still in her teens, on holidays in Sydney, uh, she was here with her sister and a friend, Heather McKay discovered the sport of squash. When Heather got back to Queen Queenbeyanne, along with five of her mates from hockey, they made a weekly booking at the local squash courts, the squash bowl in Canberra, as a way to, I guess, keep fit during the off-season of hockey. Because, you know, what are you going to do? Hockey's a lot of running around, a lot of chasing. It's like, well, how do we keep fit when there's no hockey games? Now, these weren't competitive. You know, they'd go every week, but they weren't competitive. They're just having a hit around with friends, just trying to keep fit. But on one of the days that she was playing with a friend, this made her suggested that she'd go down to Wollongong because the New South Wales Country Squash Championships was being held. She's still a teenager; She's still 17 at this point. She says, Mum, you know, the state champion fits You know how I go down and play squash with my friends. Well, someone there reckons I'm actually quite good. Can I go down to the state champs in Wollongong? And Mum says, play on. Away she goes. Now, Heather McKay's never been in a competition before. She's never been coached before. Never. Heather McKay goes to the New South Wales Country Championships in Wollongong and takes out not only the junior squash title, but the women's title. So she takes out both. Now, the then president of the Australian Squash Association sees this young woman and goes, you know what, you may want to scoot on down to Sydney because there's a, the New South Wales actual championships are on. She says, well, I did okay there. At the country ones, let me go to the other ones. So she goes to the Sydney Championships there, she wins the junior tournament and she makes it all the way to the quarterfinals in the Open Division. She's 17 years old. She hasn't had a single coaching session, and the matches she played in Wollongong in competition were the only actual matches she's ever played in her life. Heather McKay went on to win her first Australian title in 1960, which ended up being the first title of 14 Australian titles in a row, 14 straight years when she won. She did lose matches. Don't get me wrong. Heather did lose some matches. But listen to this. Heather McKay only ever lost two matches in her entire career. Two matches. In fact, from 1962 to 1981, Heather McKay remained absolutely unbeaten in competitive squash. What other athlete has ever done that? Ever. Kelly Slater's lost Heats, you know. Kelly Slater's been knocked out. You know, Warnie was a part of sides that didn't win. Heather McKay never, never lost. Never lost. She won her first British Open, which was long considered to be the highest profile tournament in the sport in the world in 1962. She won it again for 15 consecutive years all the way to 1977. Such a successful Australian athlete, someone so completely and utterly dominant in her sport on a global level, you'd think, oh, mate, she must be rolling in it. The thing is, at that point in time, women's squash was still very much an amateur sport. And when Heather went to go and play the British Open, she actually had to get two months off work to go and play. She had to take holidays with no pay to go and play. Amateur sport then was very, very, very strict about how athletes made their money. There were all kinds of rules, really strict rules, about not making any income at all out of your sport. So when Heather went to her first British Open, the Queen Bion Leagues Club, actually, had to raise money to send her over there. Now, when she got to the UK to compete... Instead of staying in a hotel, she's billeted out, all right? (laughs) Like she's on a school trip. She had an allowance paid from the New South Wales Squash Association. Like, that's the only money she was allowed to spend while she was there was the allowance she was given by the New South Wales Squash Association. By 1975, at the age of 34, understandably, she was pretty much done with this. (laughs) Uh, She was married by now. And she moved to Toronto with her husband. And in Toronto, in Canada, she turned pro. She continued to be utterly dominant in the game. And in 1976, uh, won the inaugural women's, the official women's world championship. W- didn't happen until 1976. And the first women's world championship of squash was held in Brisbane. Huzzah. Um, and she won it. Heather was incredible and beat her opponents so routinely because first and foremost, she dedicated herself to two things, fitness and technique. There's this extraordinary quote from Heather. I don't know if you've ever played squash or racquetball. I'll talk a bit more about that later on, but it's fucking hard, man. And if you're not, if your lungs aren't escaping out of your nostrils while you're trying to heave in breath between sets, you're not fit enough. There's this amazing quote about Heather and the way she approached her technique in that good technique doesn't fall down when you're tired. So she was just so particular about the way she played. Now, what that means is as well, her fitness, because she was so fit and she worked really hard more than anybody else that she was competing against on, on how fit she was. Her fitness meant that she could Get to parts of the court and make it to shots that other players would otherwise never be able to get a racket to. So her opponents would be like, oh, no one ever gets it. And because Heather's so fitching, yeah, I can get there. Bang, and I can hit it back too. And continuously over the entire course of a game, she could do that. And she was also able to hit the ball so hard and so precisely that her opponents just c- couldn't keep up because she could see when they were getting tired or where they were going. And she could just bang with just surgical precision just dissect them. Amazing. Now, when I talk about hitting a ball hard, a squash ball, they're small, they're black, there's dots. Did you know squash balls have dots? They're coated by dots. The different colored dots indicate either how bouncy they are or how long they spend in the air. So a squash ball is not a squash ball. There's, there's many different kinds. The, the competitive squash balls, the, uh, the double yellows, they are brutal. Uh, the the fastest woman to ever hit a squash ball, uh, hit a squash ball at 214 kilometres an hour. Right, that is bananas, 214 kilometres an hour. Now, m- remember, squash court, if you're standing at the baseline in a squash court, it's five metres to the wall in front of you. So, that ball is going to leave a racket, travel five metres, and if you're standing a little bit behind your opponent, maybe you're a, a metre behind them, maybe two, so you've probably... 12 metres away from the racket with a bounce in the middle. At 214 kilometres an hour, if you are like a metre or two behind your opponent, so 12 metres from the serve, 214 kilometres an hour means that from the moment that ball leaves the racket, you have 0.2 of a second to hit the ball back. So a fifth of a second at 214 kilometres an hour. That is fucking crazy fast. Unbelievably fast. A fifth of a second means that that ball is in your face pretty much the moment it leaves your opponent's racket. But think about how fast your eyes move. And a squash balls not very big, right? How fast do your eyes move? Your eyes, The equivalent shutter speed, like a camera, uh, moving picture camera, is about a 50th of a second is how fast your eye can track something, which is why close up hand magic, when they're making cards disappear in their bare hands, they can move their hands. You move your hand faster than a 50th of a second, you can essentially do something and people don't believe it because they can't see it. I've seen it happen in front of my own eyes. Um, That's essentially right. If you can get to like a hundredth of a second, if you can move a hand quicker than that, you can do something in front of someone, they won't see it. That's how they do it. So if you're shutter speed rise about a 50th per second. If you're watching to see when your opponent certs, by the time you shift your eye to the wall, the ball has already bounced off the wall and is coming straight back at your face. And let me be perfectly clear, and I went down quite a rabbit hole on this, because I'm like, how hard does a squash ball hit? Uh, quite a gruesome take, so don't listen for the next minute or so. Um, I've watched a video of someone willingly taking a shot with a squash ball to their bare back. It hit so hard that it split the skin completely open, just like you would expect a projectile traveling at well over 200 kilometers an hour. Like, it is a dangerous thing to be in the face of. So, yeah, you, you don't want to take a squash ball to the face, or the arm, or the hand, or the elbow, or the knee, or the shin, or whatever. Like, you don't want one. But Heather was just surgical with her racket, absolutely surgical. And she played so particularly... And she was so technically proficient, she eventually eliminated unforced errors from her game. So she was also able to, you know, just not drop any points, essentially, from faults and things. Now, while she was just utterly dominant, and I've watched a couple of matches that she played, I found some old footage of watching her play, I got the handle, like, just the sense of when you watched her, it it seemed that she preferred to have a good game rather than just annihilate someone. It's clear. She just goes, oh, we're playing, 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 playing. I okay, can now. And that's it. And she wins the point. Like, she, it happens when she wants it. And I'm, I can only imagine that she, maybe, she deliberately chose to not destroy her opponent. And by all accounts, and the things that I read, she preferred to give people what they paid for. She preferred to put on a good game, you know? Heather McKay retired from professional squash undefeated. For 19 straight years in 1981, that's an unbelievable athletic record, but that didn't stop her continuing to get inside the court. She played a variation, there's a game called racquetball, which is a slightly less intense version of squash, but it didn't stop her athletic drive nor her competitive spirit, goodness knows because even though she's now retired from competitive squash, Heather... She, she's living in Canada by this point. She's like, yeah, I don't play competitive squash anymore, but now I play racquetball. And she won the Canadian racquetball title five times. She won three U.S. professional titles and a U.S. Open title. like, it's like what do you do when you've retired? Oh, just switch sports and just dominate. And they're clearly an athlete of her skill and her experience and the way she carries herself. She's a you know, very extraordinary woman, the way she carries herself. Uh, really respectful and like not at all overbearing An amazingly kind of compassionate and and, and gentle destroyer of worlds, if you will. She was highly sought after and in in nineteen eighty five eventually was wooed to come back to Australia from Canada to become assistant coach for the squash program at the Australian Institute of sport and she worked with the squash teams there until nineteen ninety nine when she was like okay I think I'm done now. That's fair enough too. Now, I don't think I ever played squash itself, but I played a lot of racquetball. Because I was, uh, well, where was I? Oh, I was in Chapel Hill, uh, where I grew up in Brisbane. I grew up in a suburb called Chapel Hill. And guess what was on the hill at Chapel Hill? I'll give you one clue. Bear in mind, it's Brisbane, and in the northern part of the city, there's a, a bay with a red dirt on the cliffs there, and the place is called Red Cliff. There's a point in the river there where kangaroos used to be a lot uh, in the earlier times, and they call it Kangaroo Point. So I'll give you, again, one guess what's on the hill at Chapel Hill. Seven Eleven. no, Chapel, you're right. But it was at the Chapel Hill Road squash courts in Brisbane, which is a a brilliant, like amazing, maybe mid-60s, mission brown, wooden building nestled among the subtropical rainforest in the suburbs there. Now, this was in the mid-80s when we went. And by then the popularity of squash, had already started to wane a little bit. And I guess the, the business model of the squash complexes had to kind of adjust. And so let's say a squash complex has six courts, which, and you need it like, you know, five or six, because if you're going to do a tournament, you're going to need, you know, enough to get all the players there and everyone can you get the round robins done. And you want to have enough courts so you can get it all done in a day. So, say if they had six courts, at the time by then, squash centers were already like converting one court into a rates room and one court into an aerobic studio, which is where, why we ended up going there. Because my mum, after work for some time there, she did aerobics at this aerobic studio or something like that at the squash courts. And she'd fling a couple of bucks over the counter so me and my brother could get some rackets and some balls and just have a hit with the, um, you know, the racket ball courts uh, while mum was doing her class. And I remember the deep, deep smell of subtropical summertime sweat just baked into the carpet, you know, carpet tiles, carpet tiles. Uh, This is a time before, long time before enzyme based carpet cleaning, okay? So you're never going to get that out. And the sound, the sound of the place, the echoey thwacks of the squash balls and the laughing coming over the walls, the the, the buzz of the refrigerated water bubbler with the weird shepherd's crook thing in the corner and that long, thin hallway, because it was a long, thin hallway. They all designed the same squash courts, right? There's a long, thin hallway that goes down one side, and all the courts are off the other. They've got glass walls, so you can see who's playing. There's a big clock counting down. And I do remember how absolutely fucking hard it was. Now, yes, I was an overweight and unfit teenager. This is true. But it wasn't a tennis court. It's not massive, and it's not a hundred meter sprint. I mean, surely my brother hits the ball. I can get from here to there quick enough, can't I? By the time we've hit the ball 10 times, I'm fucked. Like just breathing out. like, oh my God. Squash is about the most intense aerobic activity that you can possibly, possibly do. Because I was remembering, yeah, it was, it was really, because I played it again later on in my teens. It was a mate of mine who lived down the road. And I don't know, there's a couple months there that we would go every now and again and play racquetball in the afternoons. It was really fun. I loved it. But Jesus, man, it's hard. But it is about the most intense aerobic activity you can possibly do. So I went and found it. I was like, there's all kinds of calculators online. I was like, okay, what's the, how, much, how many calories do you burn playing squash? Now, I did, I did the calculations to kind of bring it into the way I could think about it. Now, my current level of fitness, how my body is now, doesn't count. I mean, I'm on one leg. I'm on IV medication. Um, this is not how I normally am. I'm normally pretty fit. So I found an online calculator and I put in my body weight and a few of the exercises that I know that I've done that I can get quite in, intense like experiences doing when I really put my heart into it. So power yoga. Now, I've spoken about this on the show before. If I'm doing a power yoga class, I will sweat so much. I need to bring a beach towel to put on my mat so I don't slip on my mat and splash the lady next to me with a big puddle of yoga sweat. And this is a lesson I learned the very, very hard way. Um, yeah, I will sweat my nuts off doing power yoga, and my heart beats out of my chest, and I breathe a lot. But one hour of power yoga uh, with my body weight, I'll burn through around 378 calories, which is pretty decent. That's not bad. Uh, so I put in running. Now, I used to run all the time before my hips got fucked. I, I, I'd run every day. Uh, I'd run an hour every day. It's easy, like an easy 10K. I could do a faster 10K, but in about an hour, it's kind of leisurely 10K. It's 573 calories. And that's about right. I remember that's about my Garmin watch would tell me it's about that, give or take. It's about 573 calories for an hour of running, okay? But squash, one hour of squash with my body weight, 983 calories. That is absolutely immense. Immense. If you played squash twice a week, that is nearly a day of food that you are burning. All right? No wonder squash was so freaking popular. If you play a hard game of squash three times a week, you could literally eat anything you want. Like you'll fit your suits or your dresses or whatever it is. You'll fit all your clothes from last season, this season, like that. Don't you worry about a thing. You play squash three times a week, mate. You are fine. No wonder there were squash courts in every single suburb. They were all over the place. They were everywhere. But were, were is the operative word. Because where are all the squash courts now? This is a very good question, one that I'm going to answer, because there's got some factors involved that you will not believe. I have to take a break, so I have to pay the bills. So if you want an ad-free version of this show, you can get one. It's at patreon.com slash osher. But if not, here's some ads so I can pay the team, and I'll come right back, and we'll talk about where the squash courts have gone.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Gigi Palmer.
1: Okay, so we're back. By now, you've probably asked your parents or an older person, was there a squash court here? Fuck yeah, squash courts everywhere. So when did squash get really, really popular? In the 60s and 70s, all right? That time in Australia was a time when the kind of the outer suburbs of Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, they were all kind of really expanding and land was cheap. Developers were saying to farmers, hey, man, We'd like to grab that. No worries. Like, put a floor plan down and boom, a couple of cul de sacs and Bob's yard. Yeah. Developers were raking it in. Y- you could buy, at that point in time, you could buy enough land on what was at the time kind of like a fringe suburb, but is now like inner city Brisbane, uh, Chapel Hill, where I lived. It was the outer side, right? And now it's like 10 minutes from town. So you could buy enough land to put a massive squash complex on it and make enough money to service the mortgage that you're paying to have bought the land easily by filling your courts every night, every night. Because this is a time before aerobics, before jazzercise, before jogging, before 24-hour gyms. It was an excellent way to keep fit. And yes, before jogging. 1972, I believe, is when Nike changed the world by bringing in a cushioned sole in a sports shoe, like the reason you have a big, puffy sole in your joggers because before that running shoes were flat which mean you had to have really 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 good technique so you didn't hurt yourself when you ran but now there's a big kind of cushion under your foot so even people who don't have great technique could run and not hurt themselves that much and i guess you kind know, of you know jogging kind of kicked off but this is at the time squash was it squash was it and the suburban squash court ah The suburban squash court as well plays a really interesting role because the squash court is where deals were done. You watch old movies, you watch high stakes business stuff, squash courts, it happens in squash courts. There's that famous, just one of them, that famous scene in Wall Street where Michael Douglas is just wiping the floor with a breathless Charlie Sheen. It's a far more private space than a golf course. It's over with quickly. You can show off how fit you are in front of your boss or your underling which is what happens in that movie. And it's in more than one movie. I think it's in Syriana. There's a squash scene in Syriana. It's, it's everywhere. Uh, it used to happen in Fraser. They used to play squash in Fraser in that TV show. Squash courts were, they were absolutely everywhere. Luxury homes that were built in the seventies and eighties. I'm talking like Riverside mansions in Brisbane and Sydney and stuff like that. They still have squash courts in them. Now like they were built like it was a feature. It was like, you know, houses have a tennis court, has a squash court, has a pool, has a sauna, squash court. But now if like if I could have had a look on realestate.com, right? The houses of squash courts in them. But the the photos, it's like oh, it's like it's a home theater now or it's a cinema or it's a weights gym with a treadmill and, and stuff like that. You know, it's got a billiard room or whatever. That's it's there. There's fucking squash courts in these gigantic mansions, man. In Sydney, at its peak, in Sydney alone, there were over two hundred squash centers, all right? And many of them nestled either deep in the heart of the houses and cul-de-sacs, like the one I ended up playing quite regularly in, in Chapel Hill in Brisbane, in my teens, as I mentioned. They were either right in the middle of the suburb or they were like between the suburb and the main arterial road, kind of like behind the server or something. Because this is before there were Westfields and strip malls everywhere. There was no real suburban gyms. If you want to go to a gym, you probably had to go in the middle of the city. It was like there or maybe the footy club, maybe had a weights room, maybe. It was a squash court. Squash Centre. That's what it was. 200 fucking squash centres right across Sydney. Now, let's say there's an average of five courts each because as I mentioned about the tournament before, that's like a thousand squash courts in the city I live in booked solid in 30-minute increments every night. Game takes you about half an hour, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, but I remember we would book our racquetball court for half an hour because at the end of half an hour, you are fucked. It's like that's so many people playing this game. But... There's this crazy thing that happened, this incredible moment that happened. So, not only does fitness change, so, water, you know, jogging and aerobics and things like that kind of change, and weights gyms also very much changed. We started getting, started seeing machines show up rather than free weights. We started seeing machines, which were very, very hard to injure yourself on. You can injure yourself really easily on free weights, right? But when the machines show up, you don't really need to have, a, have personal training with you. they take you through once. they say, sit there, do that 10 times, adjust the pin so your knees are here, go. And you can't hurt yourself. Well, you can, but it's really much harder to hurt yourself by, you know, being at an unsafe plane of motion and your shoulder pop out because it won't because the machine's designed for that. So, you know, these things start to take off as well. So fitness trends start to change, but also real estate prices, they go up, don't they? And the developers come knocking on the door of a mum and dad run squash center that was nailing it in the 60s and 70s, but now who we are in the 80s, maybe even 90s. There's less and less people booking your courts. You are sitting in the middle of a highly sought after suburb with enough land to build 10 townhouses. And they go knocky knock, knock, knock. Hi, how you going? How's business? Rough. Mm. Here's that pitch. What are you gonna say, no? <laughs> these glorious treasure chests of space, these incredible huge lots of land designed by the planners, sometimes now hiding wall-to-wall with the now multi-million dollar homes that they were built next to when the f- suburb first. Sprang out of the, the cow pasture or whatever it was. But now, because the city's grown so much, this suburb is now way closer than it was because there's now mass transit, public transport. Now, the, the one lane road is now a four lane road. It's way easier to get into the city. This is a much highly sought after suburb now. Wow, you've got enough space to make, well, I could put 10 townhouses here, mate. Ask your parents, hey, where did the squash court used to be? And they'll say, which one? Because they wouldn't, sometimes more than one in a suburb, all right? But they will point to a block of flats or they'll point to a strip mall, or they'll point to an office complex. Oh, it was there, right there. That's where it was. I actually, uh, last year, I did a shoot for um, an animation project at SBS. And they took me down into the, uh, I, went, well, I rode there on the motorbike, and I, and I went down and said, oh, it's just through here. And I walk into the studio, I'm like, there's a lot of roof. Oh my God, this used to be a squash court. Said, yeah, this was a suburban squash court. But this place is in a suburb It was uh, one of eight, I think, squash courts. Huge. Like these are fucking massive rooms, right? One of eight squash courts, which had converted into offices. And this is right in the middle of a suburb of the north shore of Sydney called Castle Crag. Now, Castle Crag is, you see it on Lux listings. It's where multi, multi multi-million dollar homes hang off the cliffs above the harbour. And there's this cavernous former squash complex, less than a few hundred metres from the water. And it's now offering just gigantic. Gigantic amounts of office space. Like, seriously, what are you going to do with your business? Are you going to hope to attract the eight people that still play the game? (laughs) Or are you going to rent it out for a couple of thousand bucks a month? Dude, easy. But the sad things start to happen here because as the squash courts start to close down, people who love the game have to start going further and further away from their homes to get a game. And the barrier to entry starts to get too hard. And now between their house and the squash court, look, there's like a Fitness First or there's a F45 or whatever. and uh, There are around 200 squash courts in Sydney at the peak. There are now less than 37 squash centers in Sydney. And of those squash centers, there are only like two or three courts which is nowhere near enough to run a tournament because you need, again, you need those multiple courts. So all the players can be there on the same day and you can find a winner on the same day. There's a bluey episode about squash and the court that they went to in Brisbane, I, I, maybe somebody listening knows, but it looked like the courts at Jindaloo All Sports or something. It looked like that. Because I remember the pathway coming out of them. It might've been that, I don't know. But that's what it is, what it looked like. I love that episode about squash, by the way, the bluey episode, It's fantastic. I really loved being inside that space. There's something about the room, the, the parquetry, because they were old even by then when I was playing. They were old and the maintenance was hard to do. So there were scuffs on the walls and the floor was fucked up and the paint was kind of a bit ordinary. I had this kind of funk, the smell in the air, but there was this noise and this, people were sweating and getting into it. And it was exciting. But the other thing about being in such a small space, it was an intense experience, being another person in such a small room with a fucking fast ball, I mean where I'd play racquetball, it was fast for us, but it's not going to pull our faces off like a squash ball would, there's no way I could ever play the game now with my busted ass hips, but it was I really enjoyed it, I thought it was a lot of fun, hitting the ball as hard as you could and hearing that thwack on the far wall and then having the echoes bounce around you, I love the sound of it. I love the... It felt really good to get the frustration out, you know, because on tennis, you can hit the ball really hard and, oh, the ball's gone over the fence. You're inside a squash court, you hit the ball really hard, the ball will come back. You don't have to run to get the ball, you know, because it's enough walls, physics works, like it's going to come back to you. It was, it's great. The demise of squash as a game in our country, uh, It's. I think it's a bummer, all right? It's a pity. The loss of the suburban squash court is also... Bummer. These were amazing places, unbelievable places. I'm going to have to do another episode about roller rinks. (laughs) There's a whole episode about roller rinks. You want to talk about real estate space and highly sought after land? Roller rinks. It's it's a real bummer. But it's nothing compared to how rarely you hear the name Heather McKay when you hear about all-time Australian athletes, because there is absolutely no question Heather McKay is easily one of the greatest athletes in the history of our country. And for me, it's it's a real shame that so few people know about her. Like, you know, in Apollo 13, remember, they go up and they, they put the show on TV and they, they're up there in the Apollo space capsule and they're making the television show, but none of the networks have picked it up because, like, ah, 11 and 12 are so successful. You're going up again. Eh, ah, we know you'll make it. Eh. Ah, you know, thanks, Ron Howard, they didn't. It was a great movie. Because as Heather McKay kept being successful, interest in her started to, to wane. Even when she was the most utterly dominant athlete in the world, there was hardly any media attention. There's a, there's a heartbreaking quote that she talks about from her mother. Her mother once said to her, I knew if I didn't hear anything about you, that you had to be winning. Because they're only write about her if she lost. <laughs> How much of a drag is that? Where's, you, where's Heather? Oh, she's overseas again. How's she going? Like, you'd think you'd be writing about it in the paper, but no. they would only ever write about it if she didn't win. 21 fucking years, man. The other real shame about this is that for 14 years of her incredible run, she was forced to play as an amateur because that was the only option. That was the only option. And... Amateur sporting rules at the time when Heather McKay was playing forbade her from making any money at all from the sport. Thankfully, she took a job at the Bellevue Hill squash courts in Sydney, but some of her... This is wild because some of her opponents claimed that she wasn't a true amateur because she didn't pay for her half of the courts where she did her practice because she had a job at the squash courts. I think that's just someone who's upset they're not fit enough to get across the other side of the court to return a serve from Heather McKay. She had a small racket sponsorship come on board, but was, there's was no cash in it. It was billeting. It was an allowance. It was a lot of fundraising, awful little to no media attention. Now, have a think about this. If Heather McKay was a professional athlete, that means that the league she was playing in and the sponsors that she had and the marketing of both of those things, all those things would mean that the visibility of her achievements And who she is and what she was doing would have been there for all the world to see. And that, that's the real gut punch from all this for me. Because like I always say on this show, you can't be what you can't see. And for 21 years, what's that? That's two generations, two generations of young Australian girls, young women. They never knew that they could be the best athlete in the world if they wanted to be. They never knew. They never knew. Giving kids goals and aspirations is absolutely vital. Not every kid showing up to little kickers is going to join the A-League, but they can kick a soccer ball on a Saturday morning and that weekend, that young boy or that young girl can see, you know, the A-League and watch men and women playing exactly the same game they were playing on the TV. And they can watch Sam Kerr play and go, oh, yeah, that's cool. I was kicking the ball like she was today. That's awesome. Like, they can see the very thing they're doing being done by someone that they can aspire to be. Barely any of them will make an A league side, but come on, you've seen what sport can do for kids. The, the feeling that they're doing something that their heroes are doing is so important. It's that feeling of like I am, I am a part of something. Not, not every kid who who runs out between quarters at Oz kick at the footy will ever run on for the Swans or the Lions or whatever, but those young men and women will have a love for physicality, for teamwork, and you know, be able to watch games on the TV and watch how their heroes move and behave under pressure. And then maybe modeling that behavior when they're they're playing themselves, you know, that stuff's really important. That's also really important that, you know, when people say, bring back the beef, like the the modeling of behavior in junior leagues uh, of what happens on field during NRL games when people are punching each other's lights out, like, yeah, it's another story. But, you know, it's another time. For me... For me, this whole story, is it just underlines why it's just absolutely vital to support parity in facilities funding for women's sport, but also to demand parity for prize money in the professional arenas of women's sport. You can't compare a women's league to a men's league and go, well, the game's not the same. Well, yeah, because the women weren't allowed to play. In high school, from the age of 12, while the boys got to keep playing, not only in high school, but at club level, if the women wanted to play, they had to go and find a club on the other side of town. But even when they found that club on the other side of town, the grounds they played at didn't have any women's change rooms. The grounds they played at turned the floodlights off after the boys stopped practicing. Like they, and the the same age athlete makes the same kind of league, but the boys have thousands and thousands of hours of competition practice. The women's have maybe got a couple hundred. You can't fucking compare it. It's ridiculous. So you're not comparing athletes of similar ages equally. It's absolutely critical that there's parity in facility funding, change rooms, floodlights, equipment, you name it, for kids, boys and girls sport. But also at the top end, the prize money, there's got to be parity in prize money. It only recently happened in surfing. But other sports, like soccer, tennis, golf, basketball, it has got to be parity. It's just so important because what are we missing out on in our community by having half of the people in our society not see that they can achieve huge things. All right, now it might not be like I get inspired by male athletes, whatever code of football or sport they play. But I'm not not an athlete, but I'm inspired by them. and Inspired by the way they handle things and the translation of sport to 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 work or business or, or whatever is is an easy one to make and. The things that your brain does when you're in those, I've talked about, you know, running marathons and, you know, seeing that kind of limit and going, I can push through this and then how that's helped me in my work. Like, what are we doing not allowing allowing half of our fucking population to not experience that or benefit from that? What are we doing to ourselves? Not letting ourselves have that. We're we're shooting ourselves in the foot, mate. Yeah. So we've got to have it. We've got to have parity and facilities funding for boys and girls sports, for men and women's sports got to have parity in prize money, and good Lord, they're a dying breed, so protect your local squash court. Here's an idea. Instead of going to the gym this week, you know, you you work out, you like to keep fit, that's fine, grab a mate and go and have a hit of racquetball. Just go and do it. Find a racquetball court, find a squash court somewhere, call them up, say, can I book a court, please? Can I hire some racquetballs? The big, big paddles big, slow balls. There's walls. You can use the ceiling. Like, like No one's running over the fence to go and get the ball out of a neighbor's yard because you're surrounded by walls on all sides. You hit the ball, it will come back to you. You'll be fine. It's super fun. If you've never done it, you'll absolutely love it. And the other thing is that the squash set is that it's also quite a, the ones that are left. They're a time warp. There's still old posters around in some of them. So it's bananas. It's like literally jumping in the TARDIS. It's fantastic. And I just remember, actually, um, my year 11 form master, when I was at school, from what I recall, because he used to wear short sleeve shirts, like, you know, a proper boys' private school teacher would wear the kind of short sleeve business shirt, the Queensland. And his right arm was massive. I'm talking like an asterisk character. His right arm was like grotesquely more hypertrophy than his left arm, like huge, behemothly large. And he was the Queensland squash champion for quite a time. Might Maybe the whole time I was at school, he had this huge right arm that looked like it belonged to someone else's body. He also had a sick mustache and that kind of classic 80s before, you know, being bald was okay. So it was bald on top, kind of back past the crown of his head and then that kind of longer at the sides. So you can just imagine that when he stepped out, there was a sweatband involved and it would have been amazing. And yeah, fashion. Big part of the appeal. It's a big part of the appeal. Squeaky noises with your feet, too. Super fun. Heather McKay just turned 82. She still lives in Queen. Bian. She moved back there. Unfortunately, her husband passed away and she moved back to be closer to uh, like five siblings uh, that live there now. She still lives in Queen. Bian. These days she plays tennis rather than squash. But look. She's someone that still plays from everything that I've read, uh, all the recent articles about her. She says, oh yeah, I still play. And when I say play, I mean, look, in 2001, Heather McKay won the ITF World Veterans Championship in the 60 plus age group. Since 2000, Heather McKay has won nine Australian senior singers titles and four doubles titles. I guess, you know, keep moving if you want to keep moving. If that's not inspiring, I don't know what is. To get to 82, 82, and still be able to play a couple of games of tennis a week after a in- lifetime of intense squash, that's that's the gold standard of flexibility, strength, looking after your body, having the right frame of mind about how you do things. Heather McKay, you are at the top of my all-time Aussie athletes forever. Yeah, 21 years and then going, ah, like, she could have been, that's the other thing, 1967 and 1971, she could have been a, a hockey champ. She's like, ah, I like squash too much. So she didn't She didn't play on the Australian hockey team, even though she's, like, that good. She made the team twice. Ah, no, I'm going to play squash. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I really hope you go play some racquetball. Or at least go find it. Definitely ask your parents where the squash court used to be. Look, I'm, I, I really think I'm going to have a guest next Monday. I reckon I'll be all right. Even though there was no guest this week, I certainly hope you enjoyed a meandering adventure through athletics, athleticism, uh, physics, real estate, and a, a stark look at our community sports funding policy, <laughs> and a bit of inspiration about moving your body uh, as, as you get older. It takes a, a, a bit, like a lot of work, to do these ones without a guest, but I, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy bringing you on the adventures of My Brain Goes On. Again, everything I just told you, it was about 53 minutes worth of what I just told you, that went through my brain in about eight seconds. She goes, and Audrey looks at me, what's going on? I'm like, I just thought about squash. Because if I tell her everything, it'll be an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Because my brain literally does it. I've been thinking about that since I did that, that shoot in that squash court. I was like the fuck, these must be everywhere. And they were, they were everywhere, everywhere. Like I said, some solo said two or three squash courts, like centers, squash courts, I mean centers. I mean, there's these, like five or six of these things and these, they're giant rooms. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. If you do get to a racquetball court, send me a photo. Send me a photo. It'd be amazing. A massive thanks to Bree Steele who uh, worked on some research uh, for this episode. Other sources that I used were Wikipedia, which is uh, always interesting. Amplify.gov.au. There's a fantastic conversation there, a transcript of a chat between Tanya Evans and Heather McKay. Tim Gavel's article at in Womeninaustralia.info has some great stuff there. And Caitlin Fitzsimmons wrote a fabulous article about squash courts in the Sydney Morning Herald. So um, those are the sources that I used for this show. Big thanks to Andy Maher who cut the show together. Toe Hyder, who made all the music and who has a brand new single out. It's 47 minutes long. Get amongst it. Uh, I made the artwork for this week's episode, as last week's episode. I made the artwork using the MidJourney AI engine on Discord, which is really interesting. And a big thank you as well to Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of All Things. Thanks so much for being a part of the show. Thanks for your well wishes. Please let me know what you thought of this. Let me know what you think of these episodes. It is nine years since I started this show. And I wake up in the morning sometimes with brand new ideas and I've got an inkling, I've got an idea about what might happen with the show next. It's been better than yesterday for a while. It was called the Osher Ginsberg Podcast for a while. I think we've had four theme songs over the time. The show's always done about the same thing, but it's done different things over this time. And, yeah, I don't know. I'm in a different place from when it was better than yesterday. And I'm kind of wondering if it's going to keep being that or it might be something else. It'll still be me, but just the, the kind of pinpoint of the show might, I don't know. I'm just letting you know That's going on in my brains. Anyway, thanks for being a part of it. Send us a email at gmail.com if you need me. You always find me on Instagram. Shoot me a DM. I'd love to see where you listen to this show. And if you listen to this show in a squash court, boom, or outside of an old squash court, you win. Thanks, apes, for being a part of it. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm.